The scripture reading this morning is Luke 2, 1 through 12. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1014. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own register. Uh, own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem in the town of David because he belonged to the house of uh, line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And then there were shepherds living out in the fields, nearby fields, watching over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this Advent, we are listening in on heaven's perspective of Christmas. We're giving ear to the angel's announcement in Luke 2, 8 through 20. Last week, Pastor Bruce helped us understand what uh, the angels were talking about in verse 10 when they said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Well, this morning we're going to take a close look at the actual content of that news. What is that good news itself in verse 11? And the evidence that God is at work in verse 12, the sign that salvation is coming. So please pray with me as we open God's word and look and see what he has to say this morning. Lord, we are so grateful to be gathered uh, together. Lord, the Christmas season is such a special time uh, for family and for friends and for uh, so many wonderful things. But Lord, it's especially important as we think about what it means, where it comes from, and what you've done in sending your son to this earth. So God, give us ears to hear what the angels proclaimed. Give us ears to hear what your scripture says to us today. Give us eyes to see you more clearly, and give us hearts that are eager to be changed by you and your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each Christmas, we are bombarded with exhortations to be happy and merry, uh, to be joyful and holly jolly and be of good cheer, and so on. It is a time of celebration, the festive lights, the uh, beautiful decorations, the warm family gatherings. But for many, the uh, constant reminder that we're supposed to be happy and holly jolly, whatever that means, can simply exacerbate the fact that we're not and that we're having a hard time finding a reason to be happy. I mean, everyone else is gathering with their family. What if my family doesn't want to see me? What if I haven't spoken to my parents in years because I let them down just one too many times and they don't 
want me home? What if I would love to go see them, but in this economy, we're stuck here for Christmas by ourselves? You know, Christmas can have a lot of different effects on different people. For so many, it is a time of joy and generosity and love. But for those who've lost a parent or a spouse or a child or a sibling or a close friend this past year, it's at best a bittersweet time and at worst, it's just bitter. You know, for some who've always wanted to be married or for the couple who have longed for children, but for some reason the Lord has never answered those prayers. You know, it can be hard receiving all of those Christmas cards with these beautiful families and, and these beautiful children in their little Christmas dresses. You know, a reminder of all that I've wanted in life and yet what I don't have for some reason. And the child who shows up at school in January hearing all the stories of the new toys and gadgets and video games his friend received, his friends received, and who then feels compelled to lie about what he got for Christmas because he's too embarrassed by what his parents could afford. And so Christmas, while the radio stations bark at us to be joyful, can be a painful reminder that something is wrong with this world. Spouses aren't supposed to die of cancer at age 40. Children aren't supposed to be abused. Groceries aren't supposed to be that hard to come by. The mortgage shouldn't be that hard to pay every month. Friends aren't supposed to betray us, to hurt us, or to take advantage of us. And if you have felt that inconsistency, that if you've ever been puzzled about why we're supposed to be joyful when so much is messed up, if you have ever been frustrated and upset and let down by life, then you're in the right position to understand what Christmas is actually about. Christmas doesn't make sense in a world where everyone's happy and everything's perfect. There's no need for it if all is well. Christmas is about God stepping into the chaos, into the mess, into the disaster called life, and doing something about it. Christmas, the message of Christmas, is that God has acted decisively in His Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue a broken, rebellious people and to redeem his fallen world. It's a message not only of happiness, but of hope. And that hope is sometimes found in rather unexpected places, which is what our passage shows us this morning. You know, you read this story, and something feels anticlimactic about the angel's actual announcement in Luke 2, 11 through 12. I mean, look back at the scene in verses 8 through 10. The shepherds are watching their flocks at night, and all of a sudden a light pierces the darkness. An angel of the Lord, a messenger sent from heaven, appears to them, 
and gives them a message from God that he's going to do something about this broken world. So a baby has been born who's going to fix what's wrong with this place, who will make all things new, and here's the evidence and proof of it. He's sleeping in a feeding trough in a stable right now as we speak. Now, that doesn't exactly rouse your expectancy that things are going to start changing for the better in life, does it? You know, there's some family that was too poor to have their baby in a home or an inn, and so they had to turn a barn into a delivery room and a manger into a bed, and that's supposed to be a sign that the world is being made new. That God's actually showing up to change things. It just looks like another sign that the world's broken, if you ask me. But notice how the shepherds responded after going and seeing this sign, this baby, in verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. Sometimes we find hope in very unexpected places. So what did the shepherds see in this child that we don't readily see? How is it that they were able to make sense of such an unexpected sign of hope? And how do we cut through the commercialism and the materialism of the Christmas holiday and see with our own eyes a hope that is stronger than sadness and grief, that is more satisfying than a family meal or presence under a tree, that's more secure than our fragile human relationships, and that is powerful enough to shatter the deepest darkness in our lives and flood it with the light of God's very presence. How do we make sense of that? Well, we need to listen carefully to the story behind the Christmas story. The story that the shepherds knew and saw being fulfilled before their very eyes. The story of ancient Israel and God's promise to rescue a people and redeem a fallen world through their coming king. God's solution to dealing with the darkness, the sadness, the sin of this world, centered on the ancient people of Israel. They were the descendants of Abraham, through whom God had promised to bless all peoples of the earth, not just Israel, every nation. So God had chosen this people to be a special people for himself, not because anything they'd done, Not because they were more powerful than the other nations. They were actually the smallest and weakest. Rather because of his love and his promise to Abraham, their father. So God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He made a special arrangement with them called a covenant. So he promised to be their God and they promised to be his people. He gave them his law, his rules, so that they would know what it looks like to live as God's special people. And eventually, he gave them a king, a king to rule over them on his behalf, 
to guide them to establish justice and to shepherd them. He gave them King David and the descendants of David who would sit on his throne after him. Israel was to be God's special people through whom he would accomplish his promise to redeem this messed up world. From the evil of injustice and oppression to the sorrow of broken relationships to the very root of all our problems, human sin and rebellion against God. As Isaiah 42 puts it, Israel was to be God's servant who will, quote, bring forth justice to the nations. That was their job description. God says of them, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from prison those who sit in darkness. But, like Adam in the garden, Israel fell short of their job description and they broke their covenant relationship with God. Isaiah 42 continues, just a few verses later. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? See, the servant whose job description was to open blind eyes had become blind himself. The kings of Israel rejected God's law. They ruled their people for selfish gain. The entire nation gave their allegiance and their affection to false gods, the false gods of the surrounding nations. And so they brought upon themselves God's just judgment for their treason against heaven, for their sin and rebellion, just like Adam in the garden. As one author puts it, the covenant people have become part of the problem, not agents of the solution. You know you're in trouble when the brightest light in the room is just as dark as the blackest shadow in the corner. For Israel was not alone in their rebellion. All humanity followed in Adam's footsteps. Every nation, not just Israel, and every individual, including everyone in this room today. The greatest problem with this world is not the brokenness that we experience daily, whether it's relational or emotional or financial or vocational or physical or otherwise. These are all symptoms and echoes of a deeper problem, a more systemic problem, the problem of human rebellion against God and the judgment that comes with it. Now, that's not to say that somebody's illness is a direct result of their sin. It's to say that things like illness, injury, and cancer didn't exist until humans threw off God's rule and tried to place themselves on the throne back in the garden, thinking that we would do a better job as God and King than he would. And so, 
as a result of sin, the entire fabric of creation has been fractured. The world doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Sin and death reign where God had envisioned life and a joyful relationship with Him. So, if the solution has become part of the problem, what hope is left? That's a good question. It's no doubt a question that people like the shepherds were asking themselves so many years ago as they made their way in a dark world, still living with the results of Israel's sin and covenant unfaithfulness, foreign oppression, ongoing weakness, sin and death, and the unsettling silence of God that speaks of his separation from his people. But God was not done with Israel, nor with the rest of the world. His love for his creation, for his world, was too great to leave it in the shambles of sin and separation from him. And so even though Israel and all humanity had proven unfaithful to God, he chose to be faithful to himself, to his plan, to his promise to rescue us. He promised to through his prophets, that he would raise up a representative for, of Israel, a new king to sit on David's throne and do what Adam and Israel had failed to do. A king who, to use Tolkien's turn of phrase, will make everything sad come untrue. That's the hope of Christmas. That is the promise of Israel's coming king. It's the promise we read together earlier from Isaiah 9. The one that the shepherds watched unfold before their very eyes. Isaiah 9 too. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The shepherds were very literally walking in darkness as they watched their sheep by night when the very glory of the Lord broke in to them and His presence shone around them. And listen to the similarity between the angel's pronouncement in Luke and the promise of Isaiah 9.6. Here's Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. They're watching Isaiah 9 be fulfilled. And, and what child is this? The angel goes on. He is Christ the Lord. He is Israel's Messiah and the world's true king. He's the anointed king who sits on David's throne. He's the king that Isaiah 9, a book written some seven, eight hundred years before Jesus was born, talked about. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Israel longed for a king who would come and take away the reproach of the nations and restore them to God's favor. They longed to be free from the curse of sin's darkness, just as we long for that same freedom today. We long for hope, not some wishful thinking that dissipates as soon as you try and grab hold of it, but a tangible hope that you can wrap your arms around. We want to know that it's not always going to be this painful. We want to know that there's life beyond foreclosure, that there's hope for reconciled relationships with a broken family. We want to know that I might be able to actually know and relate to the God who made me, even though I'm unworthy for His presence. We want to know that somehow, some way, everything sad will come untrue. And it's tempting to look for that hope in the wrong places. We think we can buy it in a store. That'll make me happy. That'll give me hope. We think we can chase it in a career or capture it in family. Or we think that finding hope in God means first making it up to Him for all our failure. So I have to punish myself for messing up or come up with some way to try harder so that He'll accept me and have favor on me and give me what I need. But Christmas is not an invitation to enroll in some self-salvation program whereby you commit to improving yourself and God will reward you with a better life. That's not it at all. There's no hope in that kind of arrangement. First, because God doesn't work that way. And second, even if he did, we'd all be out of luck. No, Christmas is an invitation to find our hope in Jesus, to put our faith in Jesus and to live in that faith every single day. To put the full weight of our hope and our longing in what in who he is and in what he's done for us in his life, his death and his resurrection and to find a hope that really is stronger than sadness and grief that really does satisfy more than a family meal or presence under a tree, that really is more secure than our fragile human relationships and that is powerful enough to shatter the deepest darkness, whether we hide it in in the very recesses of our hearts. God's light and hope is able to pierce through that and flood it with the very presence. That's the hope we have in Jesus. He is God's answer to Israel's hope and to the desire and longing of every nation. God decreed to send His only Son, His eternal Son, 
fully God, to take on human flesh and become fully human at the same time. He sent him because no fallen human king was capable of accomplishing his purposes. King after king in Israel was shown to be broken and sinful and faithless just like every other human being. If God wanted to accomplish his purposes, he had to do it himself. And he wanted to. And so he took on flesh. He sent his son to stand in the place of fallen humanity, to live the life that we were supposed to live but couldn't, a life of perfect obedience, of covenant faithfulness to his father. God sent him to die the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, to stand in our place on the cross and take upon himself the full weight of God's anger and wrath against our rebellion, exhausting it so that there is nothing left for those who place their faith in Jesus. It's been canceled. God sent Christ to take on himself the full weight of every painful experience we've ever had. To taste betrayal physical abuse, loneliness and isolation, the grief of loss, even to be abandoned by his own father as God poured out his wrath on him. Why, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? And to do it all as a willing sacrifice for us in joyful obedience to his Father. God does not redeem this broken world by rescuing us out of it or by just taking the pain away, but by putting on flesh, entering into the world, and taking humanity's pain, sorrow, and rebellion upon himself. There is no trial in life that you can experience that Jesus Christ can't sympathize with. There's no trial in life that he's unable to carry you through or rescue you from. There's no trial and no sin that will be left standing when Christ returns in his second advent to finish his redeeming work and establish God's new creation. Listen to Revelation 22, where we hear another voice from heaven speaking of what it will be like when Christ returns and finishes his saving work. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Christ began his saving work with his first coming, his first advent that we celebrate each Christmas. 
He will finish it with a second, which is what our hearts look for each Christmas. Christmas tells us to look for hope in the most unexpected place. Not in the mirror, not in the magazine or the job listing, not in a portfolio or in the eyes of a lover, but by peering into a feeding trough in a smelly stable and beholding baby, Christ the Lord. And it tells us to look beyond the manger to the cross, that most ugly of torture instruments, the greatest shame of the ancient Roman world, the throne of our king. Christmas reminds us that our greatest problem, the problem of sin and human rebellion and the damning consequences of it, our greatest problem has been decisively dealt with by God himself. God has acted decisively in his son, Jesus, to rescue a broken, rebellious people and to redeem his fallen world May we find great hope in that message, in that reality this Christmas. A hope we can wrap our hands and our hearts around. A hope that can carry us through the darkest night. In Jesus Christ, God's Son, Israel's Messiah, our Savior and King. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful Father, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Lord, we thank you today for your mercy and love. We thank you that you have not left us alone in this dark world, drowning in our sin and the brokenness of rebellion, but you have acted decisively in your Son to save us from our sins having sent him into this world so many years ago. And yet, your mercy is still new every morning. Mercy for the brokenhearted, for the downcast, for the lonely. Mercy for the proud, for the rich, for the well-fed. Mercy for the poor, the hungry, those in need. Your mercy is for all sinners, Lord, and therefore it's for all of us. And we thank you for that, God. We praise you for Jesus Christ, who took our sin on himself. What a marvelous and incomprehensible gift. God, may we indeed find great hope in Christ, in your gift 
this season and every day of our lives. God, we pray that the hope of Christ will bring great comfort to those among us in need. We think of Rick and Karen Thompson grieving the loss of Rick's stepmother. We think of so many among us who will spend the first Christmas without a loved one this year. God, have mercy. Have mercy. We think of those who are ill and in need of your healing. For Todd Adele, for Joanne Ford, for Bob French, Stephen Gerber, and Ellen Roten. We praise you for the new life you've brought to Doug and Idae Blanchard with the birth of their first son, Kyler Phobes. And we thank you, God, for our missionaries who are serving the cause of Christ around the globe on our behalf and for the sake of your glory. We think specifically this morning of Leslie Bridge and the work she's doing with Campus Crusade in Virginia. Lord, may your hope be sufficient for her in her work and may it overflow to the people that she ministers to. God, in all these things, we give you great praise for your mercy, for the hope that you have not withheld but that you have lavished freely and abundantly on us in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.